Welcome to Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast, where we meet experts from all walks of life to learn their intrinsic motivation so that they can share it with the world. What do we have in store today? Stay tuned to find out more. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. And I am David. And today we are blessed with a gentleman after my own heart. He is a fellow educator, and he is also the creator of The Perfect School. And he is asking, are your kids in the right school? I know there are a lot of parents that listen to this podcast and and just that I deal with day-to-day, they feel that their student or their prized child is in the right school. But Lee Jenkins, our guest today, is going to have, he's going to share 15 questions that every parent should ask for their kids before the new school year began. And so, you know, we're less than a month for everyone, at least I think in the country that's in school now. But it's something that is pertinent for the education system, especially in the states, as we can continue to be competitive on the world marketplace. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Lee Jenkins to the podcast. Welcome, Lee. Thank you. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here, and I hope that this is helpful to you and to the people and to your listeners. Yeah, it's uh, Leah. Thanks for coming on. Um, I think it's, it's huge, one, just being a fellow educator. I actually taught second grade once upon a time. And it's just really interesting because those are the primary years that we kind of repeat patterns. And so a person may be 30, 40, 50, repeating a pattern from something that happened in early childhood as those are That's the true. formative years. So I wanted to yes. you know, dig into you know, where, where you are with that. And before we get started, if you could l- give us a little bit about your, uh, your, your credentials and how you got into the educational system. Okay, well, I uh, graduated from college in the 1960s and started teaching immediately. I uh, was in the California public schools. And I worked in the California public schools as a teacher, as a principal, uh, assistant superintendent, and a superintendent. Um, and uh, then uh, left that at, uh, to, in order to pursue the full-time writing and speaking that I'm doing now. And we ended up in Scottsdale, Arizona. And the reason for that is because of the airport. So we kind of looked at the California airports needing to be near a major airport. And either we couldn't afford to live near the, the, that airport or we didn't want to. And we landed on Phoenix, and actually we've enjoyed living in Arizona a great deal. But uh, that was the reason, and it's worked out. It's, the airports worked out well, as well as the the state. We we enjoy being here. So um, my my uh, doctorate is from the Claremont Graduate University, which is in Southern California. Uh, one of the thrills of the time that I was there was that Peter Drucker was on the faculty, and I was able to take a class from him. Uh, but but it was a, a very enjoyable experience, and I would say it connects to our topic on intrinsic motivation, because instead of there being uh, prescribed set of courses that I had to take, 
uh, I was able to create my own um, kind of what would be in, in a normal school in, in a catalog. I chose the courses I wanted. I wrote up um, how they all fit together for the, the goals I wanted to accomplish, and uh, then went to my committee, selected my committee, and, and had to convince them that this was a set of courses that would lead towards uh, what they would approve. So anyway, it was a great experience there in Claremont, and it, it and greatly connects to our topic of intrinsic motivation. Absolutely, and and I used to part of my territory was going to Phoenix a lot and, and hanging out in Scottsdale, great area. And here in Atlanta, uh, we a lot of people are moving or move here, connected to the airport. And there's a saying that if you die and go to hell, there's a layover in Atlanta. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, John Maxwell is one of the best, written more books on leadership than anybody ever, and he did move to Atlanta for the airport. And when I read that, I thought, oh, I'm not the only crazy person in the world <laughs> to do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I I want to go back uh, for a second, Lee, in that uh, in educational circles, there's everyone kind of draws back to Adam Smith for he was the creator of the Wealth of Nations in what 1776 or something, and he was mentioning that at the time that everyone couldn't get access to an ideal pristine education because if they were, then no one would do like the menial work, and so you know as a the primary economist for our our country. You know, there, it started out as, you know what, everyone cannot get access to the same education. And it kind of had, it's set up the haves and has nots that a lot of people talk about today. But if we look, if we peel back that onion, maybe we were built on that foundation. I just wanted to get your take on that. You know, that, that is an interesting. Uh, I've never th thought about that before and that topic. But, um, you know, our... Here's what comes to mind. We'll see if it fits. That the pristine education, okay, so we always think about, okay, doctors and attorneys. Okay, we have that in mind, and you know, if you get the best education, you can do that. I can't tell you how, how many unhappy attorneys I've met. And, okay, and, and I've met a lot of very happy people doing what the attorneys might look down on, uh, and, a, and a menial job where they're the, in construction or they're the plumber or they're the electrician or, you know, they're in business for themselves doing something that, that the attorney would consider menial. Um, I, I think maybe he got it wrong, okay, that, that there's joy in every job. And, and the unhappiness that I would see with the people who are unemployed looking for a job. Um, and now there are, there are unhappy people in lots of different jobs. I, I understand that. But the idea is to have a, you know, to be happy in life and a, and a job you enjoy is a big part of that. And it doesn't have to do with what people think are the pristine occupations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I was, I was yeah, just going to you, well, you couldn't be more right. And just as a quick example, I had a roommate who, was going to go to law school, and, you know, her parents were, had been really pushing her towards that. And, but ultimately, uh, 
she, when she looked around, everyone that she knew that was in law school had become lawyers were just miserable. And what she really wanted to do was teach. She wanted to be a teacher. So she uh-huh. ultimately abandoned that and then became a teacher. And she was like, it was the best move she ever made because she knew she was going to be miserable. And she, she was more interested in being happy than just for doing it just for a title or, you know, or to make her. Ultimately, I guess, to make her parents happy. (laughs) You know, uh, this is an aside, but in the middle of my career in California, I did spend five years on the faculty at Oregon State University. And uh, we got most of our students in college as sophomores to to be, um, and I was head of the elementary ed department. And the same story. They come in and they'd say, um, in middle school, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. In high school, they, a relative talked me out of it and said there's not enough money. And that relative was almost always male. <clears throat> so they talked me out of it. And so I came to Oregon State University to be a pharmacist or whatever. <clears throat> After, I don't want to do that. After a year in that school, I don't want that. I've decided I'm going to go to what I want to do not what my relatives want me to do, and here I am in my sophomore year and I'm changing majors. I heard that story over and over and over. Um, so, yeah, I, I like what you've told me. Makes sense. <laughs> and I think it's, it also goes to, you know, the uh, immigration topic as well. A, a lot of people that come from other countries, you know, their parents are coming here for a better life, and so they want their kids initially to go into, like you said, the doctor, or lawyer, uh, accounting-type positions, and there's always this pushback from the kids, like, <laughs> I no longer want to do that. I'm not happy doing it. So it may be yes. a worldwide uh-huh. phenomenon. It could be. It could very well be. Because, and, and then there's these books out of people who are in business. It's, and one of the books, I think, was called Halftime. And so they've been in business, and they've made a whole lot of money, and now they want to do something to help people the second half of their life. And I read that, I read one of those books and I thought, huh, that's, that's sad. I've, been, I've enjoyed my whole life. I've been helping people my whole life. I didn't have to wait till the, till the second half of my life to help people. I got to help people all along. This has been a great profession. Yeah. Let me ask you about that because I'm just thinking of my personal experience. Uh, there was a young girl in my class and she was she was extremely intelligent you know and uh, she was helping me out with you know the, the the kids that needed assistance you know so i would do that reverse psychology like you don't know what you don't know what you're talking about she's like yes i do mr davis that kind of thing and yeah. she used to help me after class and all you know bulletin boards and stuff and one day like you said uh, the male usually does that she comes to me and she goes i don't want to be a teacher anymore and i'm like why and she, she said her mom said they don't make any money <laughs> yeah. and so it was, i, I laugh because i'm always reminded of that and, and at the time my undergrad is in business and i just remember as a teacher you know in the trenches you got like a 30 minute lunch or maybe like a 22 minute lunch and when I went back to corporate you know you're having these two-hour lunches and what have you and you've run the gamut from the classroom to administration to consulting uh, what is what do you feel has been the best leverage in getting things done well let me can I respond first to the not enough money and then come back sure okay here's what I say to people um, 
you don't go into education to make money. That's true. On the other hand, don't stay away from education because you believe there is no money in education. Uh, Bill Martin Jr., who wrote uh, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, and Chicka Chicka Boom Boom, and you know those stories. And he was a friend of mine mm-hmm. before he passed away. Uh, he wrote 300 children's books. He, 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 went into, he went to college to be a teacher. He taught school. And I'm just saying that's just one small example. So don't stay away because you think there is no money, but don't go into it to make money. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Okay, now your other question. Or I'm sorry, repeat that for me. Yeah, it was, it's um... – well, I want to go. I want to stay here for a second, and then we'll go back to that second question. So we'll, okay. I'll put a pin in it. So when you go, like when you, you're not going in for money, and for teachers, at least in the South, uh, and that's where we are, and that's where I taught, you have the summer off. Like traditionally, you have the summer off. But yes. I found that, uh, and my experience as well, is these kids get out in you know the end of May, Labor Day, or a Memorial Day. And when they come back at the end of the summer, you're not wasting, but there's two months that you have to get them back into the system, you know, right thinking and what have you. And so other countries, they have year-long school, you know, with different times off. And I was just wondering with with, um, different approaches, do you to be competitive, is the staying out for the summer outdated? Or should we continue going along that route? Well, I was principal of a year-round school. Okay. Um, it was in California because of lack of money at that time. And so in the school were 24 teachers, but we had 18 classrooms. So every, every three weeks, six teachers moved out and six teachers moved in. But the school operated year-round, and so there were, and for the kids' perspective, they went to school for nine weeks, had three weeks off, nine weeks, three weeks off, nine weeks, three weeks off. I personally didn't notice any difference. Um, I I don't think the summer, I don't think, I think the summer issue has been uh, blown out of proportion. I'm not convinced that that it's it's a a significant problem. Uh, It's... I don't think – well, John Hattie, uh, who's one of the most popular writers in the world in education right now, is saying that the problem was, is not so much that they had summer off, but they didn't, they didn't learn it well in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let, let's, uh, this goes into a little bit of what I, what I teach. But um, we, we teach kids in United States schools to cram, get a grade, and forget Yes. They, they don't know that in kindergarten. We actually teach it, teach that to them, and we teach it to them in first grade through spelling. Um, so um, an administrator in Oklahoma where I was working uh, had her granddaughter for the weekend. And the grand, and granddaughter was dropped off at grandma's house, and she went through the backpack. Grandma did. And she said to her granddaughter, oh, honey, I see you had a spelling test. You only missed two words. Good job, honey. Let's work on those two words. And what did this six-year-old say after a month in first grade? No, Grandma. We don't need those words anymore. They're not coming up again. I don't need them. 
Ouch. Ouch, okay? But see, that is the system. And so if that's what you do through school, you learn it for Friday. Now, when you get older, it's a chapter test. And then, and then people say, well, you don't remember it when you come back in September. They didn't remember it three weeks later. Yeah. But we didn't know they didn't remember it three weeks later. We didn't discover that they'd forgotten all this until the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I would agree with John Hattie. It's, it's a problem with the cram, get a grade, forget is a huge uh, issue. And the kids then see it as a game. Um, on our topic of intrinsic motivation, it's one of the reasons kids lose their intrinsic motivation. They realize after a while, this is not about learning. This is just about playing the game. A, a valedictorian got up at high school graduation and said, moms and dads, grandma and grandpas, you know, because I'm up here, you think I'm the smartest kid in the high school, and I can tell you I'm not. I'll tell you what I am. I am the very best kid at this high school at playing the game. Hmm. I know how to cram and get and remember it for the test and get the A and then dump it so I have room to cram for the next test. I'm not the smartest one in this high school, but I am the very best one at playing the game. So, and back to your question, I don't think summer is a, is a, is a big issue. Uh, there's, some, there's some forgetting over the summer, yes, but the teachers I've been working with over the last few years, we've convinced them to not spend that two week, two months in review or however long it is, but to start with the new content the first day of school. And we do the review uh, a little bit each week all year long, but we don't, we don't focus on it in the beginning. And they will say how much further they're able to take the kids when they don't start the year off with review. So That's a good point. And it was kind of a two-headed question because I was looking at it from the student retention standpoint, but also for the summers, the summers off, a lot of teachers were realtors. So they sold homes during summer, and that, that way they supplemented their income, and yes. you know, they were both happy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, that idea that, that, that the society has, that teachers have this luxurious life with this summer off and all this free time, um, it's not true. <laughs> um, first of all, if you're trying to get up on the salary schedule, you have to spend your summer taking classes, and you have to pay for them yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was my summers when I was teaching. It was oh, yeah. going to school in order to get my salary up. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And working at other jobs. Yes. Yeah. Going from an intrinsic motivation standpoint, I, I remember, and you probably also remember, Lee, that we had a, a greater variety of classes, so we could access that intrinsic motivation via art class or phys ed or even recess, where we let the mind wander. And at least in the last 10 to 15 years, those program and I know I'm just being very generous by saying that it's been a lot longer than that, but a lot of those extracurricular, quote-unquote, classes have gone away, at least in the public school. How, do you see that as a detriment, just going back to that valedictorian? They learned how to play the game, but they didn't retain, they didn't retain anything. Um, yes, it is a detriment, okay? 
And so then the question is, um, why? Why why is that happening? And uh, th- there's a number of reasons, but if you just take the the harm that was done by No Child Left Behind, what they what, basically what the law said is you're going to get your um, your test scores up in reading and math, and if you don't, we're going to fire you. Well, what does that do? What does that do to a system? That changes it completely. And so then the focus is, um, well, just just what the politician said, and they do it. People do it to preserve their job, uh, particularly in the schools that have lower income students. It's even worse because there's more pressure to to keep your job. And so uh, history and geography have pretty much disappeared from the elementary school. Um, it's interesting to me that the politicians who uh, past No Child Left Behind are the same ones who lament that the kids don't know enough history. Well, hmm. guess what? They're the ones that, it, that said it wasn't important. So, so that, that's, that's a part of it. Um, I, I do see articles coming out saying that the value of the, the, the recess, I see, I see less um, elimination of that, but um, it's still it's still an issue, but for me, intrinsic motivation has to do with uh, every subject. We we need kids excited about math, excited about spelling, excited about reading, excited about writing, excited about history, geography, science, music, art. It needs to be about every subject, and and so intrinsic motivation has. Well, I just think about adults, okay? When somebody's intrinsically motivated, they work really hard and they love it. That's our two factors. That, and you know when somebody's intrinsically motivated because they work hard at it and they love it. Well, um, that's what we're measuring in, in, the, in my book, The Perfect School, the manuscript I'm working on. We, we measure, uh, the kids self-assess their effort, and, 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 they, and they measure their joy. We call it the will and the thrill. And, and if we can keep that high all the way through school, that would be a perfect school, that the kids are as excited about learning in 12th grade as they were, and every grade in between, as they were in kindergarten. Um, teachers are told that their job is to motivate kids to learn. That's bad advice. Um, our job is not to motivate them to learn. They came to us in kindergarten already motivated. Our job is to maintain the motivation they came with. And that's a completely different perspective. Yeah. If you're teaching grade six and the kid says, I don't like math. You say, huh, well, when did you stop liking math? The kid says, I never liked it. You say, you know, that's really not true. You liked everything in kindergarten. So tell me, when did you stop liking math? They can almost always tell you a grade level and they can tell you the story of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And so the job of the teacher is not to say, I'm going to motivate you to like math. No. Say, you know what? I'm going to try my best to get you back the way you were when you started school, when you loved everything. And the way I'm going to do that is with my ears. I'm going to listen to you and we're going to, we're going to work together 
so that we can get that love of math back into your head like it used to be. We're going to restore you. But I'm not going to motivate you with bribes, the extrinsic motivation to do your math. No, I'm going to try to rebuild the intrinsic you were born with. Yeah, but one of my sticking points and uh, ultimately helped my decision to go back into the corporate world was was that no child left behind and that there was a one child in particular that comes to mind and I had a good relationship with his parents and we ultimately decided that he should just he wasn't ready to go to the next grade and <laughs> I got a pat on my head like oh well that's nice but uh, we're gonna pass that person along anyway and these classes that was that goes to my next question where you have classes where they throw everyone in and there's arguments for both when you throw everyone in everyone can learn on different levels but then there's the other school of thought of uh, well if this is your acumen then you should be in this group and you can grow, grow a lot faster and so they separated the different learning levels but the backlash was kids knew oh I'm in the middle class I'm in the upper class type of deal what's your take on on both approaches um, there is no research out there to prove that um, separating kids by ability makes them has them learn more in fact the preponderance of the research is that they that the kids all the kids learn less when you separate them out um, I would say it does make the job of the teacher easier when you don't have that that full range, but uh, I'm I'm not seeing any evidence out there that it helps the kids learn more. Uh, in fact, you're right; it discourages them. I'm in the low group. There's no hope for me. I'm I'm just destined to not be successful. Um, so no, I I, I would not. Um, I, I as a teacher and as an administrator never supported the the ability grouping. Mm -hmm. What about the other side from a gender standpoint that uh, I know there's some colleges that are female colleges, male colleges, so on and so forth. Do you feel that in a more homogenous environment that there's no less distraction, at least in the junior high and high school level? You know, <clears throat> um, I, don't see, I don't see anything out there that says that's advantageous. I mean, it's okay if you want to do it. I see a lot of the attempts to improve education, they're not looking at the root cause of the problems. We're, we're messing around on the edges. So single-sex schools, okay, that, that's one. Um, uh, <clears throat> block schedule in the high school. Um, even year-round school. Uh, we, you know, have... I moved when I was a superintendent. We put the sixth graders from the elementary school to the middle school. Did it help? I don't think it did. It was a lot of effort for something that didn't make a whole lot of difference. I mean, I kind of like the six, seven, eight middle school, but I don't. Now that I look back on it, it was it was on the edges of things. It didn't really help. We have to look at what are the root causes of the problem. And, and, and if, if we could figure out a way for kids to be as intrinsically motivated all the way through school as they were in kindergarten, the issues we're talking about would go away. Uh, right now, um, 
we're getting I'm I'm I've been asking uh, kids and and, they, and and teachers what percent of the kids in, in uh, junior and senior high school love learning at high school and the answer I get is five percent that's the mm-hmm. consistent answer I was a uh, a student at a charter school in North Carolina that I talked to two weeks ago, and I said, uh, she's a senior, and I said, well, how many of the kids in your high school still love learning in high school? Now, they might love high school because of sports or friends or music or theater or something, but how many still love learning at high school? She said, there's seven. I said, hmm, well, how many? She said it instantly. I said, well, how many kids in the high school? She said, 140. How many seniors, I mean, how many seniors? 140. Huh, that's exactly 5%. Interesting. She said, you know, there might be some other kids who love learning in high school that I'm not aware of. I'm I'm taking mostly AP courses my senior year, and the kids I know the best are the ones who are the best students. So there might be some students who just love learning at high school who are not doing very well or as well. I don't know about that for sure. But I can tell you of the kids that are the – the ones I know that are considered the, the best students, there's seven who, who really love learning at school. Mm-hmm. So um, our issue is, is, is really psychology. All the things we do to kids that discourage them, uh, we have to stop doing, and we have to replace them with things that encourage them. So um, I was working uh, in Kwajalein this summer. Uh, if you... I had not heard of Kwajalein before, but it is halfway between Australia and uh, <clears throat> and Hawaii. It's a it's a military base, and there are 240 kids in the school on this island. And I had the teachers for three weeks, three three weeks, three days. And one of the teachers said, "I've been doing it all wrong." She said, "I teach third grade, and <clears throat> what I've done because we're working on multiplication facts." is I put a paper, um, a piece of a cut-out paper on the bulletin board, one for every kid. It's the shape of an ice cream cone. <clears throat> and when they learn their twos, then I put a paper um, scoop of ice cream on top of their cone. When they learn the three times tables, then I put another scoop on top, and the four is another scoop. She said, I realize now that's just public embarrassment. When you walk in the room, you can tell who the, who, who's, who's doing well and who isn't. Why would you want to come to school if every day when you walk in, there's a bulletin board that says you don't have what it takes? Yeah. Mm. So, and so, so public embarrassment is a big part of what goes on in schools, and the teachers are not doing it on purpose. They're not trying to embarrass the kids on purpose. They think it's going to motivate. That's what they've been told. Well, it does motivate the kids who least need motivation, and it demotivates the kids who most need motivation. So before we can really attack uh, intrinsic motivation, we have to analyze <clears throat> what, is co- what are schools doing that are causing this loss of intrinsic motivation? What are they doing? And they're not doing it on purpose. <clears throat> when I've, I've interviewed a 1,000 teachers in my career looking for jobs and say, why do you want to be a teacher? No teacher's ever said to me, no teacher candidate has ever said, I want to help, I want to teach kids how to cram well so they can get good grades. Right. Nobody ever said that. <clears throat> um, right. I want to, 
I want to make bulletin boards that will embarrass my kids that are struggling the most. No teacher ever says that. That's not what's in their heart. It's the system. And by I say system, I don't mean the bureaucracy. I mean just the culture of education. This is what we do. And so for my work, we never put anything on the wall that shows evidence of learning for individual children. We add up the total for the whole class. And so if it was a math fluency, because I was just talking about math fluency on, on, on multiplication facts, we give them a two-minute time quiz, and, and, and uh, in third grade, there's 30 questions. So that's 30, and if there's 20 kids, that's 600 questions they could answer right. We graph how many of the class got right. It's like a scoreboard at a football game. It's just mm-hmm. how, we, how the whole team did together. And, and, then, and so then the class gets to see how well they're improving. Now, obviously, each kid tracks their own progress, but it's, on a, it's in a data folder that's in their desk. They don't publicly humiliate anybody because mm-hmm. if you do use public humiliation, you've destroyed intrinsic motivation for a whole lot of kids. Absolutely. I, I, had, a, yeah, I had a teacher write me an email and, um, and say, thank you for what you did today. I have thought I was done for 35 years. And the reason I thought I was dumb was because in kindergarten, I couldn't get as many stickers after my name as my friends. Wow. Think about that. But the teachers aren't doing this on purpose. This is not critical of teachers. It is what can we do if, if our mindset is we want to preserve intrinsic motivation and, and when I talk to parents and teachers alike, that's what they want. They want their kids to keep that joy of learning they had in kindergarten. That's what they want. Teachers want it. Parents want it. We just don't know what to do. Well, that's why I'm writing this book, The Perfect School. And by the way, if people want to read the first two chapters, it's on my website. You can, and I actually put a landing page for The Perfect School. You can go <clears throat> theperfect.school. Instead of theperfect.com, it's theperfect.school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got that idea because our, the church I attend is mcdowell.church. So I realized, huh, I could have .school, <laughs> and it's there. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it's theperfect.school, and, it, and the first two chapters of the book are there for people to download and read. And by the, um, finally, by the time people listen to this podcast, Chapters three, four, and five will be on will be also posted, so people can look at it and offer suggestions of help. But it's all what is perfect, what is what is destroying perfect right now, and then what do we what do we do in place of those things? Um, that that's the third part. How do what do we replace those with? If we're not going to give extrinsic bribes, then what do we do for intrinsic? What do we do? And it's, it, that's what that's what the book is. I have to tell you that David and I actually had the same process when we were developing our site, intrinsicmotivation.life, right? So <laughs> it's really cool. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, yeah. But, no, that, that's, that's nice that we've got things, more things than just .info and .com and .org. Right. Yeah. There's a, a world of choices out there. Yes. Absolutely. So I want to I want to ask you about uh, 
Malcolm Gladwell. He had written the book Outliers. And are you familiar with the book? I am. I have. Okay. I've, I've read several of his books. I'm not. I'm trying to remember if I read that one. I, I know I've looked at it in the bookstore. And anyway, go ahead. So in the book, he was talking about in this one. There were many examples, but the one for that's pertinent to what we're talking about is uh, these high, uh, hockey. And these schools in Canada, they're like, why are the best players in hockey in Canada? Right? And you're just like, oh, because they grew up in the snow and all this other stuff. And it was no. It was the fact that when the parents could afford it, especially for the boys, they, you know, school starts at age five. Well, they waited a year until the boys were age six. And then by age six, they grew a lot bigger. They had a greater motivation because they weren't the scrawny kid. And there were just so many other factors that helped them uh, matriculate through school a lot better than if they had gone to school with everyone else at age five. And then that was a couple of years ago. And then I want to say about a year ago on 60 Minutes, they were highlighting the same deal. They were saying, is it better if we keep our kids out until the age of six? Now, I'm saying this more so as, as uh, from a boy's perspective because with yeah. girls, they mature a lot faster than boys. But they were just saying, if you could afford it. So for the parents that, you know, they had to go back to work in three months, that only happens in the, I mean, three weeks, <laughs> which only happens in the United States, uh, they did, their children were already at a disadvantage from the others that were able to keep the kids home and spend more time with them and, and develop a type of motivation versus just putting them out there into, like you said, the system. So they lose before they start. And I wanted to get your take on, on that approach of waiting, if you can, economically to uh, keep the, keep the, make the kids start school later. Um, I, I think it's another one of those things that's around the edges, okay? I mean, it may produce better hockey players. I'm not, I'm not arguing with, with that. Um, it's uh, my only really personal story that I can tell on that was a good friends who did that with their son. And it seemed to be working out. And then uh, he was in high school, and he was uh, 19 years old. He had a girlfriend that was 19 in college, and his job was to go to, to back to high school at 19 to finish his senior year. And he told his parents, I'm not going back to high school. He just said, I'm not going to be a 19-year-old senior. I'm not going to do that. And so fortunately, in that town, there, were, as a, there was a program where three high school teachers went to the community college every day and they taught high school for 19-year-olds, 19, 19 and 20-year-olds who refused to go on the high school campus. And those kids came to the community college every day to get their high school classes from their high school teachers on the college campus. And then he graduated from high school. So that's another part of it. You have to realize, yes, it may work out, and if you're going to be a professional hockey player, it's probably a good plan. But for a lot of people, the kids don't want to be a 19-year-old senior because everybody else is 17 and 18. So anyway, that's just another thought for you. No, I love it. And I think there should probably be more case studies uh, because you know, the question is, uh, do we continue with the same model? And at that point, I have to give a shout-out to my Florida Gators, Go Gators. And so we were watching a game last night, and they were thrashing uh, Tennessee. 
and one of my we were at a friend a family friendly location, and so one of my friends had his daughter there, and you know she she. We think everybody loves the Gators, but she's, you know, four or five years old. She doesn't want to care. She can care less. Yeah. And so she's getting restless. And what does he do? He gives her the his cell phone, and she's, you know, she's preoccupied with that, with the cell phone forever. And so I'm, I'm saying that because these kids have so much access to social media and just the Internet, and they can access information a lot quicker and find things out that they seem to be restless in class. And so the, the time to uncover the intrinsic motivation may be a lot shorter or who knows because the world is a lot faster than when you and I were sitting in those elementary chairs. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I wanted to get your take on addressing that from a technological standpoint. Um, you, you know, uh, if I were to uh, compare paper and pencil to technology, uh, probably technology wins in most times. It's more exciting to the kids, um, and they're comfortable with it. So I would, I would say the technology wins. If I were to compare technology to art, I, and where you actually have the paints and the crayons and all the other media, the art wins. If I were to compare technology to math manipulatives, where you get your hands on the tangrams and the pattern blocks and the base ten blocks and geo blocks, the blocks win over the technology. So it just depends what you're comparing it to. I'm just thinking that on one hand, that it's really funny when adults are saying, you know, we. We're putting a lot of onus on the teachers, right? And so, but the kids are emulating what they see the parents do, and the children are supposed to sit quiet for, you know, 40, 50 minutes at a time, and no parent does that. I mean, they're in a conference, and their phone goes off. <laughs> they have to hurry yeah. up and answer the phone. Thing. So it's like, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> and Boy, you know, you know as think. a person who, my job is teaching adults, okay? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. yeah, they... If the if the kids behave in their room the way the adults behave, there'd be wouldn't there'd be a big problem. <laughs> when you you're in the process of doing the perfect school, but you're an author of several books, so yes. are we shortcutting the process by going straight to the perfect school, or would we start out with your earlier works? The early works uh, will give more detail. Uh, probably the book that has sold the most that I've written is called uh, <clears throat> Permission to Forget and, ten root, and, and Nine Other Root Causes of America's Frustration with Education. But if you look at, just look up Permission to Forget by Lee Jenkins, it's there. And it takes that, um, it really goes in depth in why we're so frustrated with education. What are the root causes? And I mentioned a couple, the kids cram, get a grade, forget, uh, poor psychology, that we, we motivate them instead of finding out why they've lost their motivation. But it deals with those in depth. Um, <clears throat> we focus on uh, the teaching instead of the learning. Uh, John Hattie, <clears throat> again, he's the Australian I mentioned before, but he said when he takes uh, guests into a school to look around, he says to his guests, do not look at the teacher. 
I want you to look at what the kids are doing. It's about the learning. It's not about the teaching. I want you to pay attention to what the is evidence of the kids' learning. And so that's another root cause, that we focused on the teaching much more than the learning. So, yes, that would be a, a book that people could really, if they're interested, really dig into why we're so frustrated because we keep dealing with things around the edges instead of the, the root, what, what's really at the root uh, of the problems. The latest book I wrote is Optimize Your School. And uh, this, I mean, the, the best way to understand that title of Optimize Your School is to understand the opposite, which is suboptimize. Suboptimize means that in your organization, one part of the organization wins and another part of the organization loses. And optimized means all parts of the organization work well. If you just think about cars, for example, we want our, our cars to be optimized. We don't want the best engine in the world when the steering system doesn't work. Okay, we want it, we want it optimized. We want every part to work, and that's what we should want for schools. No child left behind going back to that. It, it sub-optimized education. We took away science, history, and geography, a lot of art, and a lot of music in order to get more reading and um, more phonics, basically. Um, we sub-optimized education. And so the title, Optimize Your School, is about all fun, all areas of the, of the system. There's a chapter on the personnel office, a chapter uh, on the business office. Most of it's on instruction, but it looks at the whole the whole school system. Okay, that's optimize your school. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And, and this is another could be fringy, if you will. Uh, what's your take on on uh, on their clothes like you have some schools that wear uniforms and some that uh, like you said if we want to get their intrinsic motivation they don't want to be a part of you know they don't want to be they don't want to wear a uniform you know they want to wear <laughs> whatever they want to wear uh, what's your take on the actual wardrobe that a, per, a kid take wears to school and how does it affect their education i think it's another one working on the edge it's not, not dealing with the root causes of the problems. Um, I know they're trying to have, the, it, they think it, that it kind of helps the, the regiment the kids a little more if they're all dressed the same. Um, it, it's all extrinsic. It's not intrinsic. It's not listening to the kids. It's uh, the adults deciding this is going to make, our, make the kids behave better. Interestingly enough, um, I, I was a consultant in, in uh, Lima, Peru, a number of years ago, and they have a, a national um, dress code for students. And so I said, because you know, there's a lot of poverty, obviously, there. So how's it working? Well, they all wear the same gray uniform to school. I mean, it's, that's true. But the wealthy kids have cashmere uniform, cashmere uh, sweaters, and the poor kids have cotton. But it's all the same gray. It's all Okay? So mm -hmm. I, I don't know... I mean that's just one example. I'm not, I'm not sure that it does accomplishes what we want. My sister just said we were talking about that <clears throat> uh, recently, trying to kind of equalize things for people, and and my sister said, yeah, but we don't equalize the shoes. That's what the kids all look at is each other's shoes. Um. Hmm. So, 
um, it's not dealing with the issues. It's, it's what we always do, tinker around the edges. That's a, a really good point about the shoes. It made me think of every kid getting a trophy. And I'm in the Big Brother Big Sister program, and I've been in it for nine years. And when he was seven, he was into soccer when they were all getting the trophies. And when they were playing other teams, they were like, we don't keep score. But they knew if they were winning or losing. So yeah. probably more so for the parents' standpoint. <laughs> but the kids yeah. obviously knew what the score was. Yeah, okay. So <clears throat> there's, there's two extremes uh, on this issue. Um, and, and where I am is in, in between them. But one extreme is, and this is what schools have done most often for years, is they have um, uh, awards assemblies. So uh, every year, 15% of the kids are honored in front of the, everybody, and they applaud for them and everything. And the other 85% of the kids are supposed to be really happy for those 15%, and it's not true. So that's one of the negatives that we do in school is that we honor some and dishonor the majority. The other extreme is the participation trophy. You just show up and you get a trophy. And I reject both ends of that, of that uh, line. And what we do is we honor kids for all-time best. When you do better than you've ever done before, we have a way of – we just say thank you. I mean, they, they write their name on a – uh, cut out shape and they put it out in the hallway along with the other kids. And it doesn't matter whether you're the best student in the class or you're one of the ones that's struggling. When you do better than you've done before, then, then we, we say thanks. It's, it's a gratitude. We appreciate it. So I mentioned earlier the math fluency quiz in third grade with 30 items. If a kid gets five right and the next week we do it again and the kid gets six right, that, that's, that's his all-time best. That's what we want. And so we, and I've been in classrooms in October, and the school, kids have been in school for four, five, six weeks. And I say, has anybody in here not had an all-time best yet? No hands go up. They all have, so, but they earned it. It's not because they showed up that they, that they are honored. It's because they, they worked hard and they did better than they'd ever done before. And so, and then we do it for the whole class. We mentioned before that we add up the total for the whole class and it's graphed and it's put on the wall. When the class has an all-time best, they get to do something fun for a minute or two um, that they wouldn't have, they only do when they have an all-time best. They get to celebrate it. Look what we did. And they just have fun. We don't give them anything. We just enjoy the moment. Um, and, and I'll tell you the heartwarming story. I've heard it over and over and over. The class has an all-time best when you add up the total correct for the whole class on some assessment, and they have two more right than ever before, and they get to celebrate. A kid in the room who's been struggling shouts out to the rest of the class and says, it was me, you guys. It was me. I got two right. If it hadn't been for me, we wouldn't have had an all-time best. I did it. And, and they're not embarrassed by not having as many right as somebody else. They're, they know they, that they put the class over the top, and everybody else knows it. And they congratulate the kid who's been struggling for putting the team over the top. Mm -hmm. We know that from sports. 
if, if you're on the basketball team and you're not a good athlete, but the coach puts you in and you get fouled and you make a free throw and you, then the team wins by one point, you say, I won the game. It was my point. Mm-hmm. And we, we replicate that in the schools. It's a part of keeping the intrinsic motivation going that, that, we, that kids are honored for doing better personally and they're honored when they're a part of a team that's doing better. There's no I in team, right? There isn't. <laughs> <laughs> let me yeah. let me ask you as far as intrinsic motivation from uh, a seven year old. So so he wants to be an astronaut, and in the early 2000s, you know, at the time, pre- former President Bush was really pushing the STEM program. And we yeah. see, you know, 15, 16 years later with globalization that those that have that background that got that went in that direction, they're better positioned for the future jobs or to get a job today. And so even in the this past downturn, the argument wasn't that there weren't enough jobs. It was there were not enough skilled labor to fill the new future jobs. So what's your approach to uh, keep that person that's seven years old that wants to be an astronaut and have them go into the STEM program and still love what they're doing? Well, let me, first of all, you ask about the seven-year-old, okay? Let, yeah. let, me, uh-huh. let me talk about that. I can, one of the things that is going to be at the, in the, the last part of the perfect school is, is the, the, that section is called polishing perfect. But part of it is giving kids choices on, in order, so that they can integrate their interest into the assignment that the teacher has. So one of my, for seven-year-olds, one of the things we've done with five, six, and seven-year-olds is a regular activity in learning to read is the teacher says, what word do you want to learn to read today? And not every kid every day, but over the course of a year, kids will get 60, 70, 80 different words that are their personal words that they want to learn to read. And this kid, astronaut, would be one of the words and a lot of other space words. Um, and so you, can, you get to follow that interest that, that they have. <clears throat> By the way, it might be interesting to know what their interests are. I gathered up the, the important words from 180 children in grade one, and I classified them. <clears throat> That's a lot of words, 60 to 80 words per kid times 180. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think their major interest is? I think you just, you just nailed it when you said astronaut. Their major interest is science. Nothing comes close to the kid's interest in science. It was 40% of the words. Then we had an, the next biggest category was social studies, which was holiday words, places they visited, and names of friends, and that was 20%. And fantasy was down to 12%. So that's for young children. We can follow their interests. Now let's talk, I'm going to talk about a high school example, the same thing. The teacher always said, this is from a West Virginia high school teacher. Every time he gave an assignment, he said, this is what I want you to learn. Here are three ideas of how you can prove to me you learned it. But if you've got another idea, of how you can prove to me you learned it, come talk to me. 
Well, that allows them to keep their interest. They will figure out a way to connect their interest to what it is the teacher wants them to learn. And one of the high school, this was a history teacher, and one of her students wanted to be an artist uh, and was very interested in, in cartoons. And she did almost every assignment for a whole year with political cartoons in her U.S. history class as a junior. And she proved through the cartoons she understood the history. So there are ways to take that interest that the kids have and instead of squashing it, to, to open it up. And it has to do with giving choices. But it's not uh, open-ended choice. What do you want to learn today, kids? And I'll help you learn it. No. It's here's, what, here's our class. This is what we need to learn this year. And I'm going to help you learn it, but I'm going to give you some choices of how you prove to me you've learned it. Or you're all going to learn to read in this first grade class. You're all going to learn to read. But I really don't care what, learned you, what words you learn to read with. All the sounds you need to know are built into whatever words you ask for. I mean, um, so I don't care what words you learn to read with. I just want you to learn to read. You're going, and you are. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sounds like you're about to jump in there, David. No, I was saying I wish this was around when I was growing, you know, growing up and going to school, because it, yeah, it res completely resonates. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think yeah, it's it's lifelong learning, and 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 I'm sure with you, Dr. Jenkins, that it, you're you're. A perfect school will be a, a living organism, and what works today, and because you you have that 50 years of education, and and I'm sure you're taking what works, and you you've refined it, and, and even more so probably five years from now, ten years from now, so it'll be a living, breathing organism. And I, I'd like for you to plug that perfect school again, where people can learn more about it, and also how to get in touch with you, because uh, I know you do speaking engagements as well. Okay. Um, my, my email address, let me give you that first. It's uh, Lee at, and it's six letters, the letter L, the word bell, and the letter J, Lee at lbellj.com. And the reason for that is we start the year off with an L-shaped curve. We have a bell curve in the middle of the year, and we have a J curve at the end of the year. So it's Lee at lbellj.com. The website is lbellj.com, and that's where all of the information that I teach is included, but one of the pages is on the perfect school, and you can get there from going to lbellj.com, or you could go directly to that by put, typing in theperfect.school, and it would take you to one of the pages on my website. Um, so yes, I do uh, conduct seminars for uh, schools or, or conferences. Uh, sometimes keynotes, sometimes workshops, uh, because when I, when I work with the whole school or whole school district, and we talked about adding up the total, one of the fun things for the principal is we add up the total for the whole school, and, this, and the kids do the job, and it's graphed out in the hallway near the office. And the kids get to celebrate when the whole school has their all-time best. They just, as a school, we did better than ever before. A school in uh, Nebraska recently, they had an all-time best, and their celebration was that at designated time, every teacher uh, took one of their favorite stories and went to another classroom and read one of their favorite stories to, that, to another group of kids. 
So they all, they timed it. At this time, you're all to move to the next room next door. You've got seven minutes. Share some of your favorite literature with them and then go back to your classroom. That was their celebration. I mean, it's just, it's the whole school. Every kid in the school got to celebrate. Think about that compared to an awards assembly where some kids stand up and we applaud for them and everybody else is embarrassed. Yeah. They're all thrilled. So uh, that's, that's, that's a part of this, the perfect school. We can do it. It, it definitely sounds encouraging. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely stay in touch with you to see how things are going. And, and everyone, please check out the perfect.school as well. It, it could be good just for, for your own standpoint or for your kids, your family members, all, all the above. So you have Well, it can be change. because, yeah, if the kids are hating school uh-huh. and there's, they're not working hard and they, there's no joy, that's, the, that's, the, that's when the parents step in and try to be of help. The little bumps along the way, help the, let the kids take care of those little issues by, on their own. But the biggie is keeping that intrinsic motivation. That's the biggie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you have just been tuned to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation. This is Hamza. And I'm David. And Dr. Lee Jenkins, it was a pleasure. Let's stay in touch. Well, thank you very much. I would like to keep in touch with you as, as things progress. And uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Okay, bye. Okay. Actually, it was a conversation. So, oh, Lighter. Yeah. It gets better? Uh-huh, I do. Rolled in the paint. <laughs> you dropped it in the paint. <laughs> no, I rolled it in the paint and put it on the... Thanks again for checking out another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective podcast. Please check us out on our website at intrinsicmotivation.life where you can click on the speak pipe button and leave any suggestions for a future podcast that you'd like us to cover. Also check us out on our social media sites. We have a YouTube channel, Facebook page, iTunes podcast, in addition to Stitcher and Google Play, all under Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. Check you out next time. Have a great day.